Hi everybody, welcome to Dan Snow's History. You join me as I'm standing inside the hangar, the giant hangar at the RAF Museum in Hendon, North London. I'm just underneath, oh, I'm actually next to a hurricane here, which is appropriate because 80 years ago, the Battle of Britain was reaching a crescendo. I'm here filming a very exciting new project for History Hit TV. We've got lots of wonderful historians around. We've got some of the, the team. We've got Victoria Taylor. We've got Luke Pepper. We've got all sorts of people. Um, and so, you, but that will be coming soon to a... Uh, to a streaming service near you. This episode of History has got, well, not much to do with the Battle of Britain. Well, actually, it does have something to do with the Battle of Britain, in fact. Here we go. This episode of Dan Snow's History Hit is all about JFK, one of the most remarkable, celebrated occupants of the office of President of the United States of America. Frederick Logaval is a professor of international affairs at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School. And he's also a professor of history at Harvard. He's such an engaging uh, remarkable, uh, remarkable historians won the Pulitzer Prize uh, before, met, in fact, many prizes. And he came on to talk to me about the first volume of his remarkable new biography of JFK, all about his young life, his family, his experiences in Britain in the build-up to the Second World War, and then obviously his own wartime service and early political career as well. Super interesting. Um, Frederick is such a great guy. So enjoy this podcast. If you do want to subscribe to History at TV and see this new documentary we're making about the Battle of Britain, you just go to historyhit.tv. Simple as that. The world's best history channel, actually. No aliens. All good. And then you use the code POD1, P-O-D-1, and you get a month for free, and your second month for just one pound, euro, or dollar. So go and check it out. But in the meantime, here's Frederick Logaval. Enjoy. Fred, good to see you again. Thank you for coming on. Oh, it's a pleasure to be with you, always. I guess my first question is, when I was growing up in the 80s, JFK was the dominant political figure in many ways, for, particularly in, in the sort of liberal metropolitan circles I grew up in, Anglo-American circles I grew up in. Do, do, do you think, does he, does he you're, you're, you've written this giant biography, do you, do you have, have subsequent, as, as Clinton, Obama, other people around the world, have they taken some of the luster off his reputation or do you think he still occupies that extraordinary position? I, you know, I think he's probably been, they've probably taken some of the luster, maybe in particular Obama. I would say less so Clinton, uh, but you know, to an extraordinary degree, Dan, uh, if you poll Americans uh, regarding their favorite, uh, say, post-war president, invariably uh, JFK will still be at the at the top of the list, at least in the ones that I have seen, um, or he'll be right up there. Uh, and if you go further back and you start talking about FDR and others, they're of course, of course holding a, a lofty position, but I think he still holds that largely speaking, still holds that position of, 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 um, of primacy. Does that reputation, that extraordinary reputation, given that much of the civil rights legislation, etc., was passed by his successor, does he, this is a ridiculous question, but does he deserve that? Or was he like Churchill, who very assiduous in making sure that he wrote the history books? In his case, of course, his, his court historian wrote the history books. But uh, was he just a brilliant manager of reputation? Or does, is there something important in that the memory we have of him? No, I don't think it's a ridiculous question at all. It's a really good question, actually. And I think it's, you know, I think he was an assiduous um, protector of his reputation and his widow after his death, uh, Jackie, was superb at this. And I do think that help, helps to account for this exalted position that I think he holds among, uh, among Americans. Uh, his legislative record was relatively meager, although I, I will show in volume two, this is certainly one of my research findings, 
that, for example, with respect to civil rights, though Kennedy was late in coming to the, to the table, the, the decisions that he made, and in particular the, the decision to make civil rights a moral issue, which it really hadn't been before, when he, when he did that in 63 in particular, I think it was very, very important. It helped LBJ to pass that later. So, you know, it's, it's mixed here. I think the reason fundamentally why I think he's held in such high regard, and I think maybe we need this message today, frankly, given where we are in our politics, is that he believed, Kennedy believed in, in, in government, not that it would solve all of our problems, but that government had a vital role to play in creating a more equitable and just society. He believed in politics uh, and gave, I think, Americans a heightened belief that, that, that government could speak to their highest aspirations. There's something about that idealistic message that I think matters too. And he remains, as you say, the kind of platonic ideal form of a young, charismatic politician that seems to have seems to have endured. It's fascinating. But let's talk about the Kennedys. We talk days after one Kennedy descendant, not descendant, sign of the Kennedy family was just foiled in his attempt to snatch a, a Senate seat off a fellow Democrat uh, in Massachusetts. So who are the Kennedys? Who were the Kennedys when, when this young man was born? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's one of the reasons I decided to write this book is that I find it an absolutely extraordinary story. It is one of the great American stories. I really think it is. We have Joe Kennedy, the, the patriarch, uh, and we have Rose Kennedy, and they have nine children, Irish Catholics. Uh, they become fabulously wealthy, uh, in part because of Joe's masterful insider trading, but they amass a huge fortune. And they become kind of American aristocracy, but nevertheless have to uh, have to be sort of uh, outsided in, if I can put it that way. And uh, Joe, in particular, feels slighted throughout his life that the the Boston Brahmins will never fully accept him. Uh, I think that conditions how he raises his kids to always stick together as Kennedys, always win if we can, um, and he has great ambitions, especially for his sons. And I think it's in that milieu that Jack Kennedy comes of age as the second son. After Joe Jr., who is supposed to be the one that, um, that uh, becomes president, then he, of course, is killed in 1944 in the war. Uh, and then it becomes up to Jack to sort of to carry this mantle. And that's what this volume, this first volume really discusses. I, I find it a completely fascinating story. Well, it's the old Henry VIII, Charles I, second son problem um, th- when they have greatness thrust upon them. So, but because Jack grows up sickly. Yeah, I mean, he 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 is um, one of the things that surprised me in this research. Uh, I had expected a, to find a rather callow, immature, a sort of playboy, um, uh, but I think it's instilled in him, and his mother's role is often underestimated. I think Rose, his mother was really important in Jack's upbringing. Uh, and I think she uh, insisted really on all the kids that they become readers, that they pay attention to history, that they pay attention to the, the wider world. Jack in particular develops an, a kind of international sensibility that I think is really important in his formative years. Um, and this belief in civic duty and, and public service is something that I think that the parents, for all of their foibles. It was in some ways a rather dysfunctional marriage, um, and they had quirky aspects, to say the least, to their personalities. 
Nevertheless, Jack and his siblings got uh, this this um, got these messages, and it helped make him the person that he was. Um, he's also, I indicate, very much his own master. So there's a there's a sense I suggest that he's of the family of the family, but also p- apart from the family that I find really interesting. And you, you talk about having an international sensibility. He actually, he actually grows up partly in in Europe, doesn't he? Yeah, I, there's a lot of um, a lot of travels that he undertakes when he's at Harvard as an undergraduate. Uh, spends a number of months in Europe, uh, first in 1937. Uh, then the most important one is probably in 1939. It's, it's, it's amazing to see him crisscrossing the European continent, and to some extent he's also in the Middle East, and he travels to, to the Soviet Union, right on the cusp of war. I mean, he's in Berlin uh, a week before the invasion of Poland, and in fact carries a secret message from the U.S. Embassy in Berlin back to London, where his father, Joe, is now ambassador. And that message basically says, Hitler is going to invade Poland within a week, which is basically what he does. That's more or less the correct timetable. So Jack is right there observing some of these really dramatic moments. God, that's fascinating. It reminds me of the young George Washington flailing about during the Seven Years' War. I mean, even as a very young man, he's at the very centre of of world affairs. It's a really interesting comparison, actually, and I've thought about that one, the two of them. And, of course, John Quincy Adams later later becomes president, but he, uh, under his father, is in London when his father is uh, ambassador uh, and has some of these same kinds of experiences. But JFK, what did he or did not, he disagreed with his father about... Churchill about about Britain, did he? Yeah, I mean, th- this is again when I say he was his, his own man in many respects, much more so, than, by the way, than Joe Jr. Joe Jr. tended to parrot his father's position. His father, their father was a, was an arch appeaser, strong a proponent of what Chamberlain was seeking to do and head off war. More than that, uh, Joe Sr. said, I do not want my sons fighting in a war. I don't want the United States to enter this war. Jack, little by little, as I show in the book, uh, who's a very devoted son, very loyal son, nevertheless, he steadily distances himself from his father's position. And well before Pearl Harbor, well before U.S. entry into the war, Jack is, a, is an interventionist. His father remains staunchly, staunchly opposed to any kind of intervention. And by the way, a fascinating subplot is that Joe Kennedy is very close to Neville Chamberlain early on in the ambassadorship, but as he becomes more and more bearish, more and more gloomy, and especially after the, 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 Brit, the British enter the war, you see the two of them drifting apart, uh, and they're no longer close allies. It's, it's really interesting. How is his health as a young man? Because we hear about the, the presidency, the, the great pains that were taken to uh, hide his conditions. I've always thought his Health was as a result of wounds sustained during the Second World War, but you show in this book that it was a whole, there was a whole bunch of different things going on. Can you take us through them? Yeah, I mean, it was he was he was a sickly child to begin with. I guess maybe that's the general way of putting best best way to put it because it's a little hard to determine actually what he suffered from. He had all the childhood diseases. Uh, he was prone to be uh, feverish. He was prone to have uh, stomach uh, pains. I think this is something uh, he was. They call it the Kennedy stomach. Uh, this was something that kind of ran in the family. His sister Eunice also had it. The most serious thing he had ultimately was Addison's disease. Um, and again, some of the details here, at least I was not able to 
um, to, to determine when he developed it, you know, how it developed. Um, the thing that I would say about his health travails, that we're, we probably make a mistake, serious though they were, and he had last rites delivered uh, three times during his life. So this is a guy who came close to death. Nevertheless, we should also acknowledge that this is a guy who had tremendous energy, who could go all day long when he was on the campaign trail, and in fact did in 1946 when he ran for the House, 1952 when he ran for the Senate, 1960 for the presidency. His aides were exhausted by his willingness to just go, 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 which was a secret of his success. So they're there, those health problems. But he, in a very important way, overcomes them. Uh, and I don't think we should therefore exaggerate, I suppose, their import in terms of him as a public figure. Well, or as a military figure. Uh, what, what did you find out about his military career that the, in in many ways, the, the, the sort of foundation myth, if you like, of JFK is this this youthful, uh, topless, bare-chested, was it a patrol boat captain in, in the South Pacific? Yeah, he was the he was a, a commander of a PT-109 was his, his number. It was 1943 uh, in the South Pacific. Uh, and I suggest in the book that, and I'm not the first, I think, to do this, it was a profoundly important experience for him because I think now he was a leader of men uh, in combat. The PT boats were, were pretty flimsy boats, with mahogany shells, they were kind of floating infernos. Uh, if they were hit by Japanese um, aircraft, you were a goner, basically. And so uh, it's, he's in a dangerous situation. The boat infamously is rammed one night in, 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 19, in August 1943, and they survive, all but two of them survive. And it, be it, come, it becomes up to Kennedy to then try to figure out what to do to save his crew. Uh, and it's, an, it's a rather epic story in which they do uh, save themselves by swimming a long distance to an island and then swimming to another one, and then ultimately they're rescued. But the point is that for Kennedy, I think the experience matured him. It also had one other interesting result. I think forever after, Kennedy was leery of the military, uh, of the military as an instrument of policy, uh, I think we see this later on in the Cuban Missile Crisis, which will be in Volume 2, that he's reluctant to take the advice of his military chiefs. And I think some of that skepticism about the blunt instrument of military power, uh, I think it goes back to World War II. So it has a lasting effect in that regard, too. And I always struck what's interesting about him in the patrol, but he's, you have more autonomy. He's a junior lieutenant, but he's actually in command of his own vessel, isn't he? I mean, had he gone as a junior lieutenant on an aircraft carrier, he's a tiny cog in a giant machine. He, there's a sense of that kind of slight wiggle room, the autonomy that he enjoyed in the Pacific that must have shaped his leadership, his style. Oh, it's such a good point. You are, you are exactly right. And I think that he talks about this in some of his letters. His, his closest friend, really right to the end in Dallas, was a fellow named Lem Billings. And he writes to Lem, uh, basically that. He says, you know, if I had been uh, on an aircraft car carrier in a junior position, um, he, he writes this while it's going on. He says, I wouldn't be having this freedom. I wouldn't be able to, because to, to, he, he, he was a very experienced sailor, so he loved being out on the, on the water in command of his own vessel. He now got a chance to do this. Uh, I think his father's influence also made a difference here. It's interesting, his father was adamant that his son's 
not have to be in harm's way. But to Joe Kennedy's credit, when Jack said, no, I want a PT, I want to command a PT boat, Joe didn't stand in his way, and I think he had friends in the Navy. And though I can't prove this, I do think that Joe Sr. pulled some strings to get Jack that PT command, and then he was on his way to the Pacific. Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Um, and then the war comes to an end. And then he has this other Forrest Gump moment, doesn't he? Because he, he ends up in Europe in, in 45. Yeah. yeah, the Forrest Gump moment. I love it. It's perfect. Yes, so he, he is, um, he is a, a journalist, uh, first at the UN conference in San Francisco. Um, the Hearst, the Hearst newspapers hire him to be a stringer, basically to be to be reporting from San Francisco, which he does. Uh, a fascinating set of of articles that he pens about what's going on at the UN, and he talks about the growing tensions between the Soviet Union and the Western powers, and shows, I think, I suggest this in the book, that he could have had a career as a journalist, no question. Uh, he had already at this point published his senior thesis at Harvard became a minor bestseller, Why England Slept, which was about Britain and appeasement in the lead-up to the war. So he had writerly chops. Uh, and then he goes from San Francisco and the UN conference to cover the British election. He is he's very fond of, he looks up to Winston Churchill, and so he wants to see whether the great man can survive this election, which of course he does not. So he's covering that, and then from there... The Forrest Gump moment, uh, maybe, is that he's in Potsdam um, when the conference goes on there at the end of the at the end of the of the European War after the European War, um, and he's rubbing elbows with with all these senior people. One of the things I say in the book is that nobody knew it at the time, but at Potsdam in 1945 was the 33rd president, namely Truman, the 34th president Eisenhower, and the 35th president um, Young. John F. Kennedy. Why is he leave, uh, able to leave the Navy in time? Do we see his father's influence there? When his, when his big brother died, was he suddenly, was he suddenly needed back on family duty? No, I, it wasn't. Uh, it's possible that his father, in, in ways that we don't know because it's been lost to history, that his father helped um, uh, engineer something there. But he went before a medical board in the Navy in late 1944 uh, and because of his pr- back problems, which I think had been made worse by the PT-109 incident in the South Pacific, they determined that he, in fact, could retire from the, from the service. So I think it became official in uh, early 1945, but it was a medical board that released him, if you will. He then went, as I said, to San Francisco, had this journalistic stint, and it's the following year that he then begins his political political rise. Was that his choice or his father's? It was his choice. You know, this is where I think other biographers have exaggerated uh, Joe Sr.'s role. There's this suggestion among some of these authors that Joe figuratively said, okay, your brother's gone, it's your turn. Um, 
But I show, I think I have good evidence in the book, that he's musing about political office long before Joe Jr. dies. Uh, and uh, I think he comes to this, I'm sure his father's encouragement mattered, no question. But I think this is, this is JFK's own decision that I'm going to, I'm going to, that politics is a noble calling. Uh, this is a new generation that is coming back from the war, uh, and I want to be part of this. Remember that his grandfather, his maternal grandfather, Honey Fitz Fitzgerald, legendary figure in, in Boston politics. And I think, I think JFK, even though he was, he was a very different kind of political personality, I think he wanted to be, he wanted to follow in his grandfather's footsteps. What, what were elections like? I mean, how, how dirty was Massachusetts politics back then? Did his father spend, spend money to help him get elected in, in nefarious or, other, or, or in totally legal ways? It was pretty dirty politics in Boston in those days. Uh, everything and anything seemed to be acceptable or at least was practiced. Um, it's hard to know exactly what happened, but, but um, a roguish figure named James Curley held a congressional seat um, but he was itching to get back to the mayor's office. He actually found Washington sort of stifling. He wanted to be in the hurly-burly of the Boston mayor's office. And so he resigned, and the question is, did Joe Kennedy Sr. give him a hefty sum of money to help up his mind, make up his mind, if I can put it that way? Or did he simply give him a small loan? Because there's some money exchanged, I'm almost certain. The question is how much. But the bottom line is, Curley leaves Congress. It opens up a seat in the 11th district in Massachusetts for a young fellow named John F. Kennedy that he then seizes. He is, by the way, somewhat ambivalent about whether he should pursue this. He's not quite, he's always his own best critic, John F. Kennedy, and he's not quite sure that he can pull this off yet. But he takes the plunge. He wins a really interesting race. Uh, and yeah, his father, at least on some level, helped make this happen. We're used to hearing about um, JFK's um, oratory once he becomes president. Is that is that apparent from the beginning, or is is he is he a good machine politician? Is he good at hand? You know, is he good at shaking hands, kissing babies? What what is his what what is evident at this point of his political career? Yeah, he's not. Um, I found this interesting because this was all new to me in my research. This part of the story, I had a general sense of some of the other things from from other things I've written, but here I had to go in and do my own research. Uh, much of it at the Kennedy Library, which is an astonishing uh, repository. Um, he was not a, an effective speaker. He spoke at too high a pitch. Um, he spoke too quickly. He was not good at extemporizing, so when he tried to riff, uh, he got himself into trouble. So that made him more inclined to stick to the text. That made him more inclined than to sound sort of auto, uh, sort of robotic, and um, he was not very effective. That comes later, and by the way, it becomes because of hard work. And in all of areas of his life, uh, JFK was, was capable of tremendous work. Uh, this is a little bit later, but he would practice his speeches constantly. Jackie, when they married, coached him, helped coach him how to lower his his tone, uh, and how to use better rhythms in his speech, and so forth. She's, she's actually really interesting in all of this. Nor, by the way, was he much of a, you know, uh, he wasn't one to kiss babies or to, 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 to get into a crowd and shake everybody's hand. There was a reticence to John F. Kennedy as an early politician. I suggest it ultimately played to his advantage that, that Boston, especially Irish Catholic politicians, had been so rambunctious and so voluble that they were almost kind of embarrassing 
to to voters. And the, here come here along comes this this shy war veteran, skinny 29 year old, who seems sincere, um, who had important things to say about service and about what the war generation uh, was bringing to politics. Uh, and it, it worked for him, uh, along with his father's money, to be sure, because uh, they spent some serious money on that campaign. Um, you mentioned the, the Kennedy Library. Uh, I am not suggesting that it, this is an easy posting for you, Professor. But when, when you're setting out to write one of these gigantic presidential biographies that we love and uh, that come out of the States, it, is, it, is, it kind of, is it easier because you just go to the presidential library and take up residence there for months and just they bring you everything that's ever been written to by, to, and from the, uh, the, the person in question? I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, the fact that it's just down the road, I can get on the subway uh, or get in my car and I can be down at that Kennedy Library in, in, in uh, mere minutes really makes a difference. I should say I signed this, the contract to write this book when I was still teaching at Cornell, which is um, several hundred miles to the to the west from here, it's in central New York. Um, so I didn't know. I didn't, you know, this had this had no bearing on my decision to pursue a Kennedy biography. I did it because I find him to be completely fascinating, and I think he's an important figure in American history. And one can use Kennedy. This is the conceit of the book, really. You know, you, I can use Kennedy's rise, the story of his rise, to also write about the story of America's rise. Um, but you're you're absolutely right that I can that I can be at the Kennedy Library at least when it's open. It's closed now because of the pandemic, and I need them for Volume Two to reopen so that I can get back into my seat over there. But yeah, it's it's a great thing to be able to 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 have the superb staff bring boxes. And by the way, the holdings absolutely amazing. And I ha- and I have this sense that a lot of them haven't really been looked at. Um, so that makes it that makes it really special. What do you think this extraordinary rise to position of global hegemony, superpower, some people call it hyperpower, that the US experiences really over the course of this young man's life and now he's into politics? How do you think he does embody that? I think he that's a really interesting question. I think he, he I think he does embody it. I think he himself, as as we've been saying, is youthful. Uh he's full of energy. Uh there is a a kind of powerful marriage of idealism and pragmatism in the young John F. Kennedy. And I think you could say those things, maybe this is stretching it a bit too far, but you could say those things about this young nation, relatively speaking to the other great powers, that has seen this incredible rise, partly because of demographic and geographic reasons. I mean, it's the it's where it's where the United States is situated. It's the the protection provided by the two oceans. It's this extraordinary burgeoning population with immigrants coming in by the, by the millions. Um, and then the resources of the country that make it, I think, inevitable. I mean, even Tocqueville early in the 19th century saw the time when the United States was going to be dominant over a large part of the world. It happened, and it happens to be when John F. Kennedy, as you say, is, 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 is rising. But... Um, yeah, I think he embodies he embodies that in his in his persona. Maybe that's the wrong way of putting it, but he embodies that in a really interesting way. Uh, well, it also it also strikes me from the book that unlike a previous generation who flirted, arguably like his father, but certainly with the the crop of politicians after the First World War who flirted again with isolationism, Kennedy this this was America 
passionate about global engagement. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really good point that 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 debate, which is a really vociferous one that I go into in some detail, between the isolationists and the interventionists. Both of those terms are a little bit problematic, but we use them. They were used at the time. I'm using them here. That was a that was a really bitter debate, uh, and I think we see in this younger generation that's coming up. So John F. Kennedy, as you say, as compared to his father, that shift. Uh, and it's not to say that there aren't isolationists after the war. In fact, there are. I talk a little bit about Robert Taft, for example, a, re a very prominent Republican who could well have become president. Taft and his supporters are in many respects retaining that attachment to an isolationist position, a kind of fortress America position whereby the, by the nation will not be in a leader, leadership position in the world, but will mind its own business at home. Um, so one doesn't want to say that, it, that, that 1945 ends this debate what, uh, in any sense. But nevertheless, I think Kennedy and many of those who come of political age, who come to power in Congress after the war, uh, embody this new position which says, no, the United States, working in concert with other nations, has to be in a leadership position. We've got a new threat in the Soviet Union, and we, this is Kennedy speaking, but it could be others, we have to um, take, take a leading role. No question. Okay, so last question. Um, I'm, I, I have to ask anyone who writes biography because I don't. They fall in love with their subjects. You've got to tell me the worst. What's the worst thing you found out about JFK? Uh, you know, I, I think he he could be heedless of people um, to some extent, and I say this, I think, in my preface. He and many of the other Kennedys um, tended to see people as interchangeable. Uh, it was family first with the Kennedys, and others would sometimes be shunted to the side. That said, he also had friends who were deeply loyal to him and, 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 and he was loyal to them throughout his life. So I don't want to overstate the point. Um, uh, two other things. I'll say that he was cautious to a fault on some policy issues. On McCarthyism, um, the scourge of Joe McCarthy, uh, JFK, to my mind, and I talk about this, was much too, even if he had to, he had to be mindful of the fact that Massachusetts had a lot of McCarthy supporters, a lot of Irish Catholics in Massachusetts. Uh, nevertheless, he was, he was cautious there. He was cautious on civil rights uh, to, 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 um, to look ahead a bit. The big thing, I think, is um, that he saw women as objects. Uh, his father had, you know, done the same. His father had said to Joe Jr. and to Jack, in so many words, I expect you to um, be a skirt chaser. I expect you to um, um, get as many women as you can. That's the name of the game. Look at how I'm doing. He would on occasion bring a mistress home for dinner when the boys were growing up, which I think must have confused them uh, no end. Um, but I can't I can't say that it's the father's fault, because if I'm going to argue in the book that JFK is his own man with, this, with respect to politics and with respect to uh, philosophy, worldview, um, then I've also got to, I must also argue that he should be able to be his own man in this area. Um, and so that treatment of, of women, 
um, and he's very successful with them. Um, and I should say, at least in this first volume, there's nothing predatory about JFK's pursuit that I can see. Later, I think that will become more problematic in volume two when he's in the White House, uh, and that incredible power differential must matter. But, you know, he, he cheats on Jackie before their wedding, and he cheats on her afterwards, and that's, um, that's something to reckon with, uh, especially in a Me Too age, but I think even apart from that. Um, well, thank you very much, Did I hope. Uh, you can get back in that library soon enough because I need volume two. I need volume two. Is it? Is there going to be? Is it a two volume? Is the plan? Is it? It's. A, it's. I, I pledge to you here and now that it'll be uh, just two volumes. <laughs> and I got okay. I'm sorry to do this because I just because we are building up to the U.S. election here. Do, do you think? Yeah. Do you think Kennedy's shadow? We talk about it in, among the population. Do you think politicians still think of Kennedy? Do you think they channel Kennedy? Do you think they define themselves somehow? against or, or with Kennedy, even to this day? I think that they do. And I think Joe Biden is an interesting case here. Joe Biden, who is the Democratic nominee, is, of course, he's not a young man, uh, far from it, at 77. Uh, and uh, he's a different political personality in many ways than JFK. But we know that the young Joe Biden, when he was entering politics, uh, modeled himself on JFK. They're both Irish Catholics. Uh, he was drawn to public service by Kennedy's inspirational message. You know, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask ask what you can do for your country. That that resonated not just with Joe Biden, of course, but with a whole generation of Americans, or maybe a couple of generations of them. And I think um, I think it still resonates with a lot of um, with a lot of Americans that this this sense also that you can summon the narrative of American hope, that you can offer a kind of pluralist, liberal outlook, at least if you're a Democrat. This seems to be much harder to do these days in the Republican Party, probably impossible and win office. But among Democrats, that kind of Kennedy vision, um, I think, I think resonates. And I think Americans need to be re-engaged with civic life. And I think Kennedy on some level can show them the way. And that's one reason why I think he still speaks to, to this um, deeply partisan, this cynical age in which we now, in which we now uh, live. Amazing thought. Joe Biden, I think, one political office, local political office, only six years after Kennedy was assassinated. So that's, uh, that's amazing overlap. Sorry, I've, I've just a spoiler alert for volume two, everybody. Um, it doesn't end well for Kennedy. Um, thank you very much, Fred, for coming back on this podcast. It's been a huge honour having you. When, it, when The book is called? The book is called, um, uh, in your neck of the world, uh, JFK, uh, 1917 to 1956. The US edition has a slightly longer subtitle. But you're great to have me on. It's just a pleasure to chat with you about all this. And I look forward to having you on for volume two, whenever that may be. I'll be, I'll be here. I'll be ready.
Hi everyone, it's me, Dan Snow. Just a quick request. It's so annoying and I hate it when other podcasts do this, but now I'm doing it and I hate myself. Please, please go onto iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps, basically boosts up the chart, which is good. And then more people listen, which is nice. So if you could do that, I'd be very grateful. I understand if you don't want to subscribe to my TV channel. I understand if you don't want to buy my calendar, but this is free. Come on, do me a favor. Thanks.